You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Jonathan Maguire, a data analyst and evaluator. In this episode, we explore data and statistics and how these are typically gathered, analysed, evaluated and communicated across various fields, including psychology, public health, business and education. Jonathan shares some of his early study and research activities, such as those involving honeybees, their foraging behaviour and how they learn, through to later research in human moral cognition, or how people make moral decisions and judgments. Jonathan offers insights into a range of professional practices and approaches in the field of data analytics, such as statistical models, hierarchical linear modelling, business intelligence, the scientist-practitioner model, adaptive clinical trials, and structured feedback loops. Jonathan talks us through some of his evaluation activities and how his team investigated a compressed curriculum for high school students, evaluating its impact on higher school certificate, HSC, results, and a range of other more subjective areas, such as teacher and student beliefs and attitudes, and other school level effects. Mindful that data is often about real people and situations, such as data sets related to mental health and suicide, Jonathan offers insights into some of the moral and ethical elements. We explore some of the social responsibilities associated with data and how these might be managed by generally treating the data and its communication with appropriate care and respect. For example, the increasing acknowledgement and use of collaboration and conversations with relevant research stakeholders. We explore how ethics relates to new and emerging technology such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, algorithms and bias, and the importance of bringing members of the public along on the journey so they get to realise the value of the data as well. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Maguire. So, good to see you. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, thanks for having me. So, I was interested, I am interested to find out a little bit more about you, maybe what you studied. Uh, I don't know how far we'll go back, but what you, what were you like at school or um, it's up to you how far we go back, but I'm, I want to find out a little bit more about you, you and your attributes and interests. Sure, sure. I'll, I won't go too deep into high school, but I will note I was kind of a nerdy kid, as you might assume, you know. Um, I grew up in northern New South Wales, you know, pretty small country town. So when I finished high school, uh, I came down to Sydney to go to the Big Smoke to go to uni. Um, and I think I read what was then called the UAC book, the University Admission Centre's book from start to finish, trying to pick uh, what degree I'd do. And I chose psychology because that seemed to be a nice uh, area where, you know, there was still a lot to discover, um, lots of open questions, and it kind of tied in with a lot of my interests. 
um, in sort of how people think. Um, so I finished up school and came down to, to uni in Sydney and jumped into, uh, jumped into a psychology degree. And on, on the day when I had to sign up for my lessons, I hadn't realised that you got to do electives. And on the spot, I just decided to do some philosophy because I needed to fill out the half of my um, courses that I sort of hadn't selected in advance. Um, and that actually turned out to, to sort of reverberate throughout the rest of my studies, as it were. Um, so, look, I, I did a fairly standard psych undergrad um, I don't know I, what that means. Oh, okay. So, um, look, it's a pretty broad course. So, you do things like developmental psychology. So, how, um, you know, how kids develop their mental processes over time, uh, cognitive psychology. So, looking at how memory works, for example, um, Perception. So, how does how does the human visual system work? Did a little bit of Freudian stuff even at one point. So, because psychology is such a broad field with so many subspecialties, the undergrad that I did at least kind of touched on a whole bunch of those. So, you did a little bit of uh, what they called abnormal psychology. It's probably called something different now. Psychopathology, uh, maybe. No, potentially, yeah. So, you know, learning about things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, etc. And so, mixed in with that, as part of the psych degree, there was a lot of stats. So, the psych degree is relatively stats heavy. Why is that? What's the what you mean, like statistics, as in numbers? Yeah, and, yeah. So, what's going on there with all those numbers in a like a kind of philosophical human kind of system? I guess. Yeah. So when when I was studying, they talked about a scientist practitioner model a lot and about uh, psychologists kind of occupying a space where even if you're in practice, if you're acting as a clinical psychologist, you need to be able to engage with the research and be able to understand, interpret, make, draw your own conclusions from a published paper. Um, but there's also a pretty strong emphasis, uh, at least the university I went to, in sort of academic pathways and being able to do your own research. And obviously, in order to do that, you need to be able to analyze the data that you've collected. But it's, it's very explicit in a lot of psych training, that scientist practitioner sort of model. And I think that's kind of modeled somewhat off uh, sort of how medical professionals have training in the sciences as well as in the clinical aspect so they can integrate new evidence into their practice and also contribute, I guess, to the evidentiary basis by doing their own research. Um, the funny thing is that I actually didn't particularly like statistics in my undergrad, um, and I think I sort of barely passed my second year statistics course, which is funny now that I've been in analytics for a really long time. Um, so I... I uh, did an honours degree in psychology um, through a slightly strange turn of events. I started, I, I did my honours component on bee foraging behaviour. So I would train. Like a buzzy, buzzy bee, like, buzz, an like honeybees. Yep. Right. Yep. How does that 
work. Well, so <laughs> you get a bottle cap and you fill it with sugar water and you hold that in your hand and you take it up to the opening of the hive and a little bee will crawl onto it and start to drink the sugar water. And then you carry that bee over to your little experimental setup and you you sit it down and you put it in whatever stimulus uh, you want. So I was trying to get them to associate colours with the likelihood of there being some um, some more sugar water there. And then you, you put a little bit of um, nail polish on their back so you can identify which one's which. And then you sort of track their behaviour. So I, that's what I ended up doing um, for my un, undergrad um, honours thesis. which it's has, a, Yeah, go on, sorry. So I've got this kind of lifelong sort of fondness for bees, even though I was quite bad at doing that and they stung me a bunch of times. I'm still quite fond of bees, I think, because of that experience. So you had to come up with a kind of like a theory of this is I, I believe this will happen, like, you know, they're, they're attracted yep. to magenta or something, and then you go through the process of, I guess, measurement of sorts and, and yeah. kind of collecting the data. Well, I guess what's in, what was involved with that, these bees, apart from getting stung? So this is going back a while now. I'll have to dredge it up from memory. But essentially, uh, you get your bee and you put them down and there's kind of two patches of colour. Let's say there's yellow and blue. I can't remember the actual colours I used. And there's another bottle cap on each of those. And one of those just has normal water in it and another one has sugar water. And you repeat that a few times, seeing if they learn that blue means sugar water. And then you test them again at a later stage and see whether they preferentially go to a blue patch rather than a yellow patch, which would indicate that they've learned that association and they've remembered it. I hope I do hope you're going to share your findings, like what <laughs> happened in this little experiment or this big experiment. So they learned it. And then the rest of the experiment basically fell apart because I wasn't very good at actually recruiting the bees into the study and getting them to follow through with my little experiment, unfortunately. Yeah, you didn't have the, um, I guess, I'm trying desperately to think of a funny one-liner about these participation, you know, but. Yeah, a lot of psych research is done on psychology undergrads and, you know, Often they have to participate in a study to get course credit. And I, I didn't have that sort of sway over the bees. I just had to try and um, convince them with a bit of sugar to participate. So we, we think, I'm thinking, trying to think of like in terms of program design, course design, it sounds as though the emphasis was on the skills of putting together, like you referenced earlier, the skill of putting together an experiment and then collecting the data, and so it's terrible to hear that it, it sort of went off track, but I'm assuming that you got it back on track, or what What happened then? Well, I got it back on track enough to get my honours, you know, um, and I think that's just something that happens in science all the time is, you know, an experiment that was well-designed just doesn't go according to plan, and that's part of the deal. Um, so, you know, I managed to get honours um, and then I went off and I'd always wanted to be a scientist so then I enrolled in the PhD program um, staying at the same uni and so I chopped and changed a little bit as to what I was 
going to look at. Um, but this is when that interest I developed in philosophy kind of came back and influenced my my decision. I ended up actually looking at moral cognition. So a lot of the philosophy I'd read was about how people should make moral decisions, but my research was into how people do make moral decisions. And what's an example? What's a what's a clear example of that this sort of moral decision you speak of? Sure. So the most famous example has to be the trolley problem, uh, oh, I've which heard of you that might one. have seen the memes on the internet of everyone taking the mickey out of it. Um, but the original version is essentially you're standing by the train tracks. Um, there's an out of control uh, trolley that's hurtling towards five people who are you know, uh, tied to the track or otherwise unable to escape. And you can pull a lever that would redirect it so it would hit one other person instead and most people say no i wouldn't pull the lever and so what that uh stimulus is meant to elicit is uh, a tension between the outcome which is five versus one and kind of the the moral rules like don't cause harm to someone don't don't introduce harm into someone's life which you would be doing to that one person by uh, pulling that lever, and so there's there's sort of kind of a whole subgenre of moral cognition research that is variations of trolley problem type stimuli and giving them to research participants and saying, would it be okay to do this thing? So then, what what sort of territory did you end up exploring in that? So I ended up looking at the extent to which moral decisions feed back into people's understanding of causality. So sort of the received view is that people look at a situation, get a sense of what the causal chain is, and then use that to make a moral decision. What is uh, it, can you rephrase that just in kind of sure. more everyday language? Something sure. that's caused, yep. I'll, I'll stop talking. Sure. Yeah, I, I lapsed into a bit of jargon there. So um, Bob is walking down the street. Jim walks up to Bob, punches him in the face, steals his wallet and runs away, right? The, uh, the basic view of moral cognition is that you go, okay, well, I can see that there were these two people that were separate. One approached the other. There was a punch. There was, and just like a really uh, rational reading of what that chain of events was. And then you go, okay, given that chain of events, here's what my uh, moral judgment of that is. And that's a really simple example, and that's one where it's really clear. But there are other situations or other you know, stories where it's not as clear as to what the causal chain was and you know, who did what and why they did it. And so what I was looking at is the extent to which people make an initial moral judgment and then go and sort of reinterpret the original scenario in a way that then backs up the moral judgment that they made. And I that like, was what I looked at. You're like kind of like retrofitting a decision like afterwards. They sort of can go back and rethink or re rearrange their, their decision-making process. Is that what that sort of territory? Yeah, or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just looking back and going, Okay, well, because I've reached this moral conclusion, 
therefore I'm going to interpret the situation in a way that justifies that moral conclusion. And so that's kind of philosophically interesting because it potentially makes some moral decision-making circular. It means you can't actually sort of rely on it because people are making an initial moral judgment and then just um, justifying that. It doesn't. It doesn't quite apply to the real world, is that? Or no, not really. So a lot of the stimuli you use in these experiments are pretty artificial and not particularly realistic. But you can see um, how this plays out in the real world, particularly when someone expresses a really strong moral opinion, and then when they're challenged on that, they kind of double down. And oh, okay, yeah, you know they refuse to engage with evidence that would kind of count against their moral mm. position. It's similar sorts of reasoning. So you do see it in, you've probably had um, conversations with people where that's happened. <laughs> um, oh, yes. So, I kind yeah. of can't cite any at the moment, but I, I, I'm kind of I'm thinking, that, yeah, I'm familiar with that kind of phenomenon, I guess. And yeah. so I guess your PhD was seeking to... Um, understand what's under the hood or what's going on psychologically or, you know, the mechanics or the logic or the, yeah. I don't know, that kind of territory. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of how strong that, uh, that effect is. So after my PhD, um, I did a postdoc, but following the, the postdoc and in, sorry, postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, so in that, um, I brought together the, the moral judgment research with um, some schizophrenia research that I've been doing as a research assistant and looked at moral cognition and schizophrenia. But when that wrapped up, I was looking at moving out of academia and I actually ended up getting a job as a data analyst in um, a New South Wales government department because I actually developed an interest in statistics over my PhD, funnily enough. And since then, I've just had a series of roles, first as a data analyst and then data scientist, and more recently moving into sort of leadership in data research space. Now I'm leading an evaluation team. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you're working as a data analyst and you, 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 you're working analysing numbers and figures. So could you tell us what's involved or, you know, what do you actually do? What's, what comes with that territory? Sure. So at the moment, I'm in an evaluation team. So uh, if you haven't heard the term evaluation before, uh, it's essentially uh, a type of applied research where you look at some intervention that's occurred in the world and whether it has been done um, according to plan and whether it's had the uh, sort of impact in the world that it was intended to. So I'll give an actual example um, to put some flesh on those bones. So um, I work for the New South Wales Department of Education. Uh, I'm here not as a representative of them at the moment, but I'll use an example um, of work that this team did um, that's that's publicly available. So in New South Wales, you know, students do a 
the HSE generally over two years, right? And you do English for the whole two years and maybe physics for the whole two years, et cetera, et cetera. There's a different uh, modality that that can be implemented where you actually do half of your courses in one year and half of your courses in the other. So you might do English in one year and all of English in one year and then all of physics the next year, right? And some students prefer this. It's called compressed curriculum. And so that offering is there, but the question is, does that work, right? And so one of the things that we do as evaluators is firstly to ask the question of, well, what do you mean does it work? Because there's a lot of ways that you can cache that out. You could say, work. does that What's yeah, this exactly. work? Please define the word work. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So when someone says, does compressed curriculum work, do they mean, does it improve HSE results? Or does it mean students have greater levels of satisfaction? Or does it mean students are more likely to stick, stay the course and finish their HSE? Does it mean they, that it allows more flexibility to do courses that students are interested in? So, you know, the very first question that we're always asking as researchers or as data analysts is, what exactly do you mean by that? So what you know, did they mean? What, what did they mean in that context? So a, a mix in this instance. So they wanted to know whether it had an impact on HSE results, but also um, a range of other um, sort of more subjective, I guess, or qualitative um, things like, do students like it? Do teachers like it? Do schools find that it gives them the flexibility to deliver, particularly when you've got really small schools that kind of can't do everything all of the time? So evaluation is trying to investigate all of those questions. And obviously, it's got a, a big overlap with sort of the research skill set. So in this particular example, when we did that evaluation, what we found was that um, compressed curriculum tended to be run by smaller schools and particularly those schools in more uh, remote regional areas, uh, that it did allow or tended to allow more options to students. So students could tailor um, to their own desires or needs um, and that Teachers really liked it, um, felt that it gave uh, more depth of content and more continuity in the studies, and it didn't have any particular effect on HSE results. So going back to our original question of does it work, it depends on which question you're asking. If you thought the whole purpose of this was to raise HSE scores, then no, it didn't work. But... Uh, the other way of interpreting that is, isn't it great that there's this program that can offer flexibility and students like it and teachers like it, and it doesn't have any negative impact on HSE results? So those are the sorts of questions that we're asking as evaluators. Now, in terms of the mechanics of that, it's a lot of, you know, getting the HSE data once students have sat their HSE um, combining that with the data that identifies which students undertook compressed curriculum and then running statistical models that account for things like school size and prior academic achievement. Um, a lot of 
hierarchical linear modeling. Um, tell tell that, us a little bit about what you just said then. I'm only just keeping up, I think. So I'm going to embarrass myself if you have statisticians in the audience oh, by, well, by this description. I'm sure they're <laughs> out there. But I guess, I, you know, we just kind of hover in a just a, a lay, lay person kind sure, of sure. idea. Because it sounds like it's a lot more complex than, well, I thought, but a lot of people would not realise it just can get very complex with all the variables and all the, all the, all the moving parts as such. It's hard to kind of isolate what, you know, to, to know for sure. But then well, that's why I'm interested to know yeah. what's kind of yeah. a little bit more about the, what's going on. Sure. So what hierarchical linear modelling is trying to do is to acknowledge that um, students sit within schools and there might be a school-level effect, you know, maybe that school has better access to resources or something. And then within that school, different students will have different levels of outcomes, Right, so it's trying to account for the fact that students are clustered together into schools, and attribute uh, what to what extent the outcomes for each individual school uh, for each individual student, sorry, is because of those school level effects mm. versus the student level effects. Yeah, what are their level? Are they, do you use the word context? I guess is that a thing, or no? That's more like a lay term. It's more of a lay term, but it's a good way to understand this so you know the context for any particular student is the school that they're in and the context for any particular school is the community that it's in so we try and take those things into account so maybe at a school level you're looking at things like um, average levels of socioeconomic advantage in the catchment area so you've got a sense of how advantaged or disadvantaged other students as a whole here. And then maybe at a student level, you're then looking at, well, what were their what were their NAPLAN scores like last year? Because that's sort of where they're coming from. And we need to take that into account when we see where they are now. And do you do the whole process based on the data that's just kind of there as part of the student's process anyway? Or do you go in and ask um, more questions or more surveys and all that kind of stuff to gather more data to, to understand the situation better. Yeah, so again, it's both. So obviously things like NAPLAN results or HSE results are, are just there, you know, for, for most students. Some students, for whatever reason, aren't able to sit the NAPLAN, then we need to use sort of advanced statistical methods to account for that and um, try to treat them fairly in this. But, you know, as a general rule, we have things like test scores are already available. Things like attendance is available. But you don't have um, available as a general rule, what is the student's attitude towards um, the mode of delivery boy, uh, for boy, their how HSE? Does, how does one measure that? Well, typically you ask them. <laughs> so... <laughs> Right. So it's a lot of, um, you know, very carefully designed surveys and interviews and focus groups and things like that. Um, but the question might be as simple as on a scale from one to five, from very dissatisfied to very satisfied, 
how satisfied were you with whatever element of their education you're asking about? I'm following what you're saying, but is this a typical kind of project that you would be working on? Are all the data analysis projects like this one or are they really quite different? So it varies a lot. So in previous organisations, I've... I've led teams where a lot of what we were doing is what you'd think of as business intelligence. So what I mean by that is more uh, descriptive analyses. So this is how many complaints we received in March. Okay, now let's break that down by state. Now let's break that down by the, the gender of the complainant. That sort of level of analysis. Now, that sort of analysis can kind of get a bit of a bad rap amongst analysts sometimes because they say, oh, that's not particularly interesting um, or, you know, I want to go and implement some more advanced techniques. But that stuff is often really the lifeblood of an organisation. I guess I was thinking that it wouldn't. it's not dull and tedious and boring if you're a business owner and it can give you clear business advantage to have the results of that kind of crunching that data, finding out what's going on. But I don't, why does it get a bad rap, this sort of approach to data uh, analysis? Uh, look, you're, you're absolutely right. This sort of stuff is really valuable to businesses. I was actually speaking to a plumber uh, a couple of weeks ago and he mentioned that he sells more heat lamps in winter because people are very cognizant of the fact that their bathroom is cold when they're getting it renovated or, or whatever. And so that to him is really valuable just to know that. Um, I think why it gets a bad rap is because it's not as perceived as, as cutting edge. And so there's a lot of um, excitement about uh, particularly machine learning techniques and uh a lot of those really advanced techniques. And once you've got to play with those, then I think some of this more uh, descriptive analysis can seem a bit less interesting because you're not making inferences. You're not predicting something into the future. You're simply describing something that's already happened. And so I think there's perhaps a bit less of the thrill of discovery when you're doing that sort of work. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So all those mechanics of all this data, they're clearly they're human systems that you seem to be analysing. So I'm just wondering at what point do things like ethics maybe come, come up? Well, tell us maybe a bit more about that dimension Sure. So there's been a lot of conversation recently about ethics and particularly in relation to uh, various forms of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, a lot of discussion about where uh, algorithms that are fed biased data end up with biased outputs. But there's, there's a whole range of ethical issues and I can probably illustrate this through an example of a time when I actually failed to be fully cognizant of the ethical issues of a data set 
that I was working with. So oh this is a few don't, years don't, ago now. Don't overshare, but I am intrigued. What what can you tell us? What happened? Sure. Um, before I get into it, I'll just give a, a brief content warning that this uh, example will uh, refer to suicide. And that is my moral failing is I forgot or I failed to, to really take that into account. So the context here um, is that I was working for uh, a mental health advocacy organisation and we had access to some quite detailed data about suicide and we were putting together data presentations that were meant to inform policy makers and researchers in the suicide prevention space. And one of the analyses I did and one of the things I made was to look at the means via which someone had died of suicide and the geographical distribution of that. And the idea there was that policymakers could look at that and identify where they could um, do interventions that would hopefully reduce um, the likelihood that someone would die of suicide in that area. And so I made this interactive uh, map that was designed to do this and I was feeling like I'd made a really valuable contribution and we went to publish it and um, our head of communications said, hold up, hold up, hold up. You absolutely cannot just put that on our publicly facing website because someone who is in a very distressed state of mind might see that and that might actually trigger them to, to do something. And we absolutely cannot run that risk. And so this was something that just absolutely hadn't occurred to me. And that's where I had, you know, <laughs> really made the mistake. And so the, the tension then was, we really felt that this product could be really useful for suicide prevention professionals, but we really didn't want it to have any unintended negative consequences. And so we were trying to balance those responsibilities around um, making it available, but not maybe too available. So after some discussion, what we actually ended up doing was we did publish it, but we put it behind a password. And so essentially um, anyone who wanted to access it for you know, a legitimate reason could apply and get free access to this, but just introducing that bit of friction into the process and requiring that application to be made and that password to be provided, we felt sort of introduced a safeguarding aspect whereby it minimised the likelihood that this product would cause unintentional harm. And so I think about that a lot now when I'm doing analyses, when maybe I, I get a bit too caught up in the statistical model or, or the numbers or, or whatever fancy um, machine learning thing I, I do, it's, it's good to reflect on that example, take a step back and remind myself that this is data about real people. Sometimes it's data about bad things that have happened to real people. And it's really important to treat that data with care and respect and make sure that you are keeping those sort of broader ethical considerations in mind. 
Yeah, I guess it is kind of taps into lots of different things with, say, technology or science or, you know, I guess atomic bomb type territory where it's kind of, you know, the, the scientists are kind of doing what they do, but then at some point their their findings will be will kind of enter the world as such and then sometimes they're generally good and positive but then it's kind of well I guess that's a question how do you predict what what will be the the kind of done thing to kind of manage the process in a responsible way kind of how do you ascertain what what how do how do you approach it or and in this example you you kind of solved the solve the conundrum by just restricting the data to certain individuals but then i mean yeah like how do you do you have professional discussions and map it out or how does it work it's all somewhat informal so you know in sort of structured scientific research you have ethics committees you want to run an experiment that has sort of human or vertebrate uh, research participants, you say, I want to, you know, train mice to run around in this cage uh, or in this maze, I should say, I need to apply for an ethics, uh, for an ethics, I need to do an ethics application, get that approved. There needs to be that oversight, right? Yeah. Now, unless you are uh, wanting to publish in research journals or you're applying for access to someone else's data in the analytics space the that doesn't exist as much so it is much more about having conversations with the relevant stakeholders and ideally representatives of uh, any particular groups of interest um, that that you're doing an analysis about to say is this analysis appropriate? Is this analysis ethical? So, for example, if you were doing an analysis about disability in Australia, ideally you would be talking to people with disability and saying, does this analysis sit right with you? And that yeah. can be a really good check because if you're not willing to, to have that discussion, then maybe you're not doing the right thing. Yeah, it does tap into a lot because of that kind of, I guess, scientists, just speaking broadly, um, people that study things, there's the kind of the object of study and they don't always get a say in, you know, how the information might be used. But then what you're saying is that these it's the done thing now to, to kind of bring in more of the that voice, I suppose. Well, I think that's that's increasing. I wouldn't say it's the done thing in the sense I, I don't think that the majority of people do it, but there's much more conversation of how to bring in those voices at an early stage and not to have it just as a box ticking exercise, um, but to actually have meaningful um, collaboration really um, right at the start of the process rather than at the end, for example. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the kind of design, like right back to almost like the beginning of this sort of the cycle, if that's the word. To what extent are you in, involved in the design of the research process or are you more at the other end of analysing um, something that has already occurred type thing? Uh, so 
in my current role where we're sort of start to finish. So we're there from designing what the what the metrics should be, what data should be collected, all the way through to analyzing and, and reporting that data. In previous roles, I've just been in a situation of this is the data that the organization collects. Let's try and use it to answer this particular set of questions. And you just do your very best to um, come up with ways to analyze that data to answer that particular question. Mm. I, I mean, I, I guess it's, is there any particular ethical kind of examples of in educational um, research, like in terms of the data, how the data may or may not be used? And I mean, just speaking broadly, though, I'm kind of, that just occurred to me just off the top of my head. Yeah, so just as a hypothetical example, imagine that you are rolling out a program that was meant to improve outcomes for um, disadvantaged kids and it was meant to be a three-year-long test um, at which stage you'd analyse all the data and report back and decide whether to, to do the program. Well, what if you ran the data at the 18-month mark and found that the program absolutely was having amazing results. It would be pretty tempting to say, that's all the information we need. We actually need to roll this out more because there are kids that are missing out on this program right now. And that, that is very much an ethical decision. Conversely, what if you ran an analysis at the 18-month mark and said, uh-oh, this program, which is meant to help these kids, is actually causing all these negative effects. We should cancel it. <laughs> straight away. So there is always an ethical dimension to an analysis uh, because it should be informing a decision. And when you're working in education, those decisions have a moral element because it's about uh, providing the best education to those children. Mm, so so do you mean like the the kind of research cycle kind of needs to needs to be planned out effectively to begin with and then the, the research cycle uh, ha- has its kind of um, run it's things aren't like you don't you're not swapping horses mid race type thing you kind of is that what you mean so I'm probably going to get the name wrong but I came across the concept of adaptive clinical trials right and so uh, The idea behind an adaptive clinical trial is maybe you're giving uh, patients some new medication that's meant to cure some disease and early results indicate that all of the patients that got the new drug went into remission or were cured or whatever, and none of the patients who got the placebo were. Adaptive clinical trials are built so that there's a decision point where you say it would be unethical to continue running this experiment because we know we should start giving everyone the new drug now. So that's something I've been thinking about recently in terms of how to incorporate those sorts of of structured feedback loops between analysis and implementation into the sort of work I do. So you don't end up uh, getting to the end of the, the clinical trial per se uh, and saying, well, the drug definitely works. It's a real shame for all of those people who were in the control condition. 
<laughs> it's not funny, but I've, I, you know, it is kind of like, oh, I'm assuming that that used to be the way, the, the kind of standard approach. Yeah, and there have been various approaches to how to deal with that. Um, for example, people in control conditions, um, sort of switching over into the treatment condition at some preordained uh, stage. Um, but the adaptive clinical trial approach is about, I, I guess, just having those checkpoints where you say, do we need to change something about what we're doing now? You know, And that, that could be because the drug's working really well, or it could be because actually it's giving terrible, terrible side effects to people. And what we need to do is actually cease the use of it. Yeah, so they're sort of making a critical assessment that has kind of got a milestone, uh, yes. midway, a midway point kind of thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to think of it. So as I was saying before, it's really exciting for analysts and data scientists to jump into the AI and the machine learning and all of the advanced statistical models. But that can be, uh, that can leave some people sitting on the outside thinking, wow, data is really scary. I don't understand it. Um, it all seems so very, very complicated. And maybe those people then take a step back and don't engage with data. So I actually think it's really morally incumbent upon data professionals to do the communication side really well, uh, to bring other people along on the journey. And that could be, you know, describing to them just what the business intelligence stuff means, that sort of descriptive work, uh, explaining to them why it's important, how they can use it. Or it can be after you've implemented your really fancy machine learning model, giving them an analogy that will make sense for them to explain how the model works, what it can and can't be used for, and you know why they should be interested in this. So I really think that we need to work very hard to bring other people on the journey so they get to realize the value of the data as well. In this episode, I chatted with Jonathan Maguire, a data analyst and evaluator. You can find more about this episode in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.